From the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution, welcome to CHQ&A, Chautauqua's new podcast. I'm Jordan Steves. We're excited to launch this new series this month as we approach the 2018 Chautauqua season of programs in the arts, education, interfaith dialogue, and recreation. In the coming weeks, we'll air conversations with leaders and luminaries who will help define the 2018 summer experience. A little on their personal background, what drives them, and what to look forward to this coming season. Then, during the season, we'll continue the conversation with some of the institution's most prominent guests on their roles in the matters that shape our world. I hope you'll join us. Today, we'll speak with David Griffith, the institution's new vice president and Emily and Richard Smucker Chair for Education, who is about to enter his first summer of leading Chautauqua's literary and lifelong learning programs. It's going to be a, a really interesting summer, you know, in you know, when it comes to CLSC, because uh, everyone's going to have an opinion, I think, about these books, and I, and I look forward to hearing from people about their experiences reading them. Listen on to hear more about Dave's thoughts on teaching, his path to Chautauqua, and his approach to leading some of the institution's most historic and popular programs, plus his most anticipated moments of 2018. And now, my conversation with Dave Griffith. Joining us in studio today in the Cohen Multimedia Studio here on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution is David Griffith, the Vice President and Emily and Richard Smucker Chair for Education here at Chautauqua. Dave, thanks so much for taking the time out of your schedule to join, to join us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Jordan. So, Dave, you're uh, you're a relatively new face around these parts. Um, you took over as Vice President in September, right after the previous season. You spent some time at Chautauqua during the season here to get uh, to dip your feet in, dip your toes in a little bit. But I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your your upbringing, what led you into a life uh, immersed in the written word and, and teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I should say at the top that I had never uh, heard of Chautauqua before, um, the mothership Chautauqua here in Western New York, uh, before applying for this job. I had heard of the concept, right? The the circuit Chautauqua, as it's as it's often called. Um, uh, and when I was growing up in Illinois, um, there was just actually not too far away from where I grew up in Shelbyville, Illinois. There is a, a historic Chautauqua there, um, and so you know I had a dim understanding of, of the concept, um, but it wasn't until I came to the grounds and really started thinking, um, you know, in depth about accepting this job that, you know, I, I, I really got my mind around what this place is. And I'm still, uh, considering I'm so new, getting my mind around it. And as I started to understand the, the history and tradition of Chautauqua, I understood why, uh, why I, I felt like the universe was calling me here. Because I grew up with books and I grew up um, being encouraged to read. My first library card uh, as a five or six-year-old uh, was for the Carnegie Library in Carnegie, Pennsylvania. So uh, it doesn't get any, for me, it doesn't get any cooler than that because uh, libraries are just a big part of my life and books are a big part of my life. So uh, as an undergraduate, I studied English um, and I took my first creative writing course as a sophomore in in college and, and really never looked back. I, there was a language being spoken um, in the, these creative writing courses that, that made sense to me. Um, to think about uh, a work of, of literature in a reverse engineered way, right? How does the, how's the author 
creating these effects in, in me and making me feel these things and uh, and think these these thoughts. So that that really attracted me to to writing and and uh, you know really built upon the foundation I had growing up uh, as a reader. My parents were always encouraging us to read and 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 buying us books uh, from used bookstores most of the time. Um, and you know, so that really carried me into graduate school and pursuing a master's of fine arts in creative writing at the University of Pittsburgh. So I spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, in Pittsburgh several years after my uh, MFA, and really fell in love with the city. And um, you know, taught at University of Pittsburgh, taught at Duquesne, uh, and then eventually got my first job at Sweetbriar College in Virginia. Um, my first book had come out uh, called A Good War Is Hard to Find: The Art of Violence in America, and um, I, you know, I jumped at the chance to to become a professor, which is what, for years, friends were telling me I should do. Uh, which I don't know if that was a compliment or uh, or a criticism, but I think they just wanted me to have a, an outlet for, uh, I think for you know my um, my enthusiasm for 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 literature and for teaching. So uh, you know, I, I spent several years at Sweetbriar, um, and you know, there came a moment where I, you know, I was I was coming up on tenure. And thinking about, well, is this the place where I'm going to retire? Right? Is is this it? You know, because uh, once you get tenure, it's really not a lot of incentive to try to jump ship after that. And um, one day, a friend of mine who I taught with for uh, you know several summers um, at the Pennsylvania Governor's School for the Arts at Mercyhurst College, she called me up. She said, "There's this job at Interlochen Center for the Arts in Michigan. Um, I know you're you know you're happy there, but what do you think?" So. Jumped ship, uh, you know, to make a long story short, and directed the creative writing program at Interlochen for four years. Um, it was really there that I that I really I think came into my element, working with uh, um, high school aged um, writers who, you know, really have identified this as a passion for them. They come from all over the country, all over the world, and um, you know, really got to be instrumental in creating their curriculum and. Um, you know, and and building out their summer offerings for creative writing, um, and so you can kind of probably hear that these are a lot of the experiences that I'm bringing now here to Chautauqua. A lot of experiences working with young people, uh, youth you know youth programs for the arts, um, is really one of the big. Uh, pieces of what I do here as vice president. And I'm grateful to Michael for recognizing that uh, in me. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's how I came here. I, I skipped over a lot of things, but, but <laughs> we'll for the most part, bit. yeah, but for the most part, it, it's been a love of books from the beginning uh, and, and really a, a, a deep appreciation for how reading and writing are a part of all of our lives. Uh, and I really believe that's true. And I believe that, that Chautauquans feel that that's true too. What sorts of books stick with you from your formative years and so, why? Yeah, so the book that um, really opened my eyes to the power of literature and the impact that it can have on a person is uh, John Hersey's Hiroshima. And Hersey, as you probably know, is a, a novelist as well as a journalist. And he uh, grew up in a diplomatic family um, in uh, in the East, I, think, I believe that they were in uh, China. And um, after the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, he was one of the first Western journalists to find his way into the city. And um, the uh, article that he wrote uh, was subsequently published in a, an issue of The New Yorker almost a year after the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. So the entire issue of The New Yorker was taken up with this article. Mm. Um, some people have called it the the most influential you know article you know uh, ever written magazine article ever written, um, and it was then published as a book, 
And I remember reading that as about a seventh grader and thinking to myself, where has this been? You know, where, where this kind of experience where I'm, you know, um, learning about, you know, the world, um, where I'm getting to feel in some small way what other with these people who were victims of the of the bomb felt uh, seemed really important to me, you know, um, and I wanted to be able to do that kind of thing in some in some way. So Hiroshima has really stuck with me. Uh, my other, my literary crush, or the person that I call my literary crush is the um, Southern writer Flannery O'Connor, uh, who um, most of my friends uh, by this point just kind of roll their eyes when I mention <laughs> her name. But, you know, I think O'Connor was really influential to me because O'Connor was the only writer um, that I was introduced to as a young person who uh, was both um, faithfully ardently Catholic, I was raised Catholic, uh, as well as just a supreme master of her of her art form. Not that there's not other Catholic artists out there who are who are very talented in uh, what they do. Of course there are. But I, as a writer, I, I didn't know of many writers who were doing that. And her work is just so uh, strange and violent, as, as I think her reputation uh, precedes her, that... Um, you know, I just read everything that I could possibly get my hands on, and so that was about as a as a freshman in uh, in college, and so those are those have been my two kind of guiding stars for a long time, Hersey and and Flannery O'Connor. I think in more recent years, the people that have been really influential to me are people like James Baldwin. Um, you know, as a as an essayist, I, I write essay. Um, James Baldwin, you know, is is an American master. Uh, as well as Joan Didion, uh, who's also a you know journalist and, and an essayist, and um, I, I have nothing in common with her at all as a woman who who grew up in California and was writing about the Hate Ashbury experience in the late '60s. But yet she, like Hersey, I, I think, and like O'Connor, um, was writing about a very particular place and time and bringing to life that historical moment in a dramatic way, so that people uh, could could share again in some small part in in that so i'd say those are those are my those are my uh you know sort of guiding stars um and i'm always in, now in this new job uh, here as vice president for education where i'm in charge of literary arts and the clsc and young readers um now i get to spend a lot more of my time uh, reading new work which is not something i was getting a lot of chance to do previously you mentioned CLSC. That's the Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle here on the grounds, a, a, a more or less a book club, but um, where we invite authors to the grounds to present their works. And we'll we'll get into that the program that you've put together for 2018 in a bit. I want to ask about your writing. Um, you, as you mentioned, you are a published author. Uh, you wrote the book A Good War Is Hard to Find: The, Vi- the Art of Violence in America. And it's a series of essay reflections on what happened at Abu Ghraib in Iraq, uh, which is interesting because in the news recently has been the, the question of in, you know, enhanced interrogation techniques, otherwise known as torture, and around the nomination for, uh, of Gina Haspel to the CIA um, directorship. Can you talk a little bit about that book? Do you see some, uh, some of what you wrote about in, this was in the mid-2000s at, uh, at that time, um, do you see reflections of that and what we're debating still today? Sadly, yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm, I, I like to think that I'm not right very often. You know, um, in fact, there was a, a, a joke, you know, for a while there that I would, you know, my James Bond villain name is often wrong, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that there was there was something that I got right about uh, what was happening with torture, you know, uh, 
in Abu Ghraib prison and elsewhere, as it turns out, you know, all the the, the, the huge amount of, of investigative journalism that that uh, went into exposing what happened at Abu Ghraib, as well as other um, prisons and what they call black sites, um, places that are off the map, really, and usually in other countries uh, where um, high value uh uh, detainees were being taken to be interrogated. Um, it, it continues to this day. Um, I, I don't think anyone is naive enough to believe that that all of a sudden we stopped um, doing these things. Uh, it's just that it's not a matter of policy. Uh, so the C, you know, in the CIA, um, that was the biggest, I, I think, difficulty in writing the book at the moment that I did because it was breaking news when I when I was writing the book. So uh, you know, but I really just had to use that limitation uh, as uh, fuel, you know, for, for writing. I mean, the, everyone, I think, had an opinion about, you know, the extent to which enhanced interrogation techniques, aka, you know, torture, um, should be used and what circumstances it should be used. And, um, you know, I, I realized that there was a way to write about uh, my reaction uh, to that to that scandal at Abu Ghraib prison in such a way that that wouldn't be so narrowly focused on exactly just uh, just what happened there, but think about well, why is it that one would have the opinion that it would be okay to torture a person? In uh, what circumstances do we believe that you know meeting out punishment uh, and violence on another person is is justified? Um, and those are the kinds of questions that I was struggling with with the book, and so I tried to, as much as I can or as much as I could in that book, to to think about. Uh, my own upbringing, my own adolescence, and what was it that had that had brought me to this moment where I was reacting so strongly uh, to to these events? And uh, whereas friends and uh, family members were not reacting as strongly to it. So, um, as far as you know, in what ways does the book still still resonate? Um, I think it's because um, you know we are back at a moment when um, xenophobia and jingoism is. Uh, um, you know, is a, a, a part of our daily life. Um, it's in the news. It's, you know, th- there's a kind of foment right right now in America uh, about the other, about immigration, about, um, um, you know, terrorism, uh, whether it be homegrown or uh, whether it be, you know, from abroad, that, you know, is, make, makes people scared. And I think that the, that the fear um, that, you know, that our, the, the, that our dangerous world, uh, you know, triggers in us is something that different people handle differently, honestly. And so I think that for me, that's why the book continues to, to be resonant is because I I wasn't interested in just writing an investigative piece about Abu Ghraib. I was thinking about what are the ramifications, you know, of, um, this way of thinking about the, the treatment of others. Um, so in fact, I just got a royalty check in the mail yesterday <laughs> for eighty bucks. Hey, uh, so it's still selling a little bit, uh, which is which is great. Um, but yeah, sadly, the, the the issues that I discussed in the book are are, are still relevant. Yeah. You're working on a, a second book right now called Pyramid Scheme: Making Art and Being Broke in America. I assume that Chautauqua taking precedent in your life has kind of pushed that along a little bit on the back burner. But I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you're looking to, what you're exploring in that process and what we can eventually look forward to reading. Sure. The, the title, um, the, the title comes from a, uh, an article that was written about masters of fine arts programs in creative writing. Um, you know, a masters of fine arts is, uh, 
historically was a, a studio degree, much like getting a master's of fine arts in in painting or ceramics, where you go and you spend two, sometimes three years working on your craft. Um, at some point, the master's of fine arts became more of a professionalization degree that would prepare you to teach. It became a terminal degree that would prepare you to teach creative writing in a university. And um, there was an article that was written um, in, in which someone was criticizing uh, the proliferation of MFA programs such that it, it almost started to appear like a pyramid scheme, right? Where you were bringing, you know, uh, recruiting more and more people into this, uh, into basically an industry in which there were fewer and fewer and fewer jobs, but we were pumping out more and more and more people with, with MFAs. I'm curious, which was your experience when my, you went through an MFA? Yeah, my experience was was uh, kind of a, a mix. I, I, was, I was lucky to to both have a year um, to, uh, to just write, um, so kind of like a fellowship year. And then uh, my last two years, I did some teaching. So I was able to get, I think, the best of both worlds there. Um, but the reason why the, I decided to use that idea of pyramid scheme or that metaphor for this particular book is because, um, you know, the, the life of a creative person um, whether it's their hobby or whether it's their livelihood, um, is fraught with all of these, uh, I think, difficult decisions sometimes, right? Um, what is the value of what I'm doing, number one? You know, it, it, can I actually make a living doing this? And I think there are the book concentrates on the various myths, uh, both pernicious myths that are kind of lies, uh, as well as myths that I think are really important and necessary to uh, to ensure that we have future generations of artists as well, so it's it's really looking at those myths that that lead us to um, to, to view the the artist in America the way that we do, um, and that's that's something I've been interested in a really long time. You know, uh, as someone who's comes from the Midwest and comes from a, a railroad family, um, you know, where um, you know, so many members of my family have have, have worked, uh, you know, on, on the railroad. And that's not something that obviously I, I, I took up. I have a lot of respect for it. Um, but, you know, I, I was always wondering, well, in what ways is this actually a job? In what ways is being a creative person actually uh, actually contributing something back uh, to you know to culture and 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 to society. So a lot of it just has to do with my anxieties and and I when I was looking around and I was talking to people about these issues, they were like, oh my gosh, you should totally write about <laughs> you should totally write about that. So that's what the book is about. It's a, it's about these anxieties about leading a creative life um, that you know um, are, I, I think that everyone struggles with to to a certain extent. Um, and it, I think if if there's a if there's a, a, a kind of uh, thesis to the book, you know, I'm, I'm really wanting people to, to think very hard about what is the value of the arts and creativity in their lives? What kind of value would you would you put on it? You know, I'm kind of sounding like an NPR uh, <laughs> telethon here. But yeah, that, that's that's what the book's about in a nutshell. So you have two children of your own. What what do you wish for them? A creative life? Are you pushing them at it in that direction, allowing them to, to find their own way? Uh, where are they headed? Yeah, well, you know, when poor kids, uh, <laughs> when you grow up in in a house uh, with a lot of books, um, like you know, like they have been, um, you know, there's going to be some osmosis there. And um, you know, I'd say that my daughter uh, is very much a reader, very much uh, a writer. Also likes to draw. I mean, she she really is, uh, you know, I think headed for a life and uh, that is creative in, in in some form or fashion for her career. Uh, it, it remains to be seen with my son. Uh, he, you know, he 
is sort of in her shadow quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, right now he's playing a lot of Xbox, I think, <laughs> um, and uh, running around outside shooting Nerf guns. Um, so um, I, I think you know he's he's about ready to to uh, I think start to express his own you know personality and, and what his interests are. So I'm eager to, to to see what happens there. But they'll be on the grounds right. this uh, this coming season, which I'm excited about and. Uh, yeah, we'll see what they what they gravitate towards. Based on your experience and what you're writing about right now, do you wish for them a creative life? Mm. Okay, well that's a more pointed question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's it, it's it's a really wonderful life. Um, I mean, I think it, you know, in a lot of ways, it affords you, um, you know, being around interesting people, uh, interesting conversations. Um, I also think I also, I also think it just prepares you to, um, you know, live your life in such a way where you're constantly curious, you know, and constantly um, entering conversations with a posture of wanting to learn, and that's what I would wish for them is is whatever they do that 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 they approach life uh, in that very open way. Um, Chautauqua is a place, as you know, where we convene people from you know all walks of life conversations that are very difficult at times, very fun and lighthearted at other times. And in order to, I think, get the most out of this place, you know, you, you have to come with that openness and that desire to learn and that curiosity. So um, it's exciting for me to, to, to be able to offer that to them. If you're just joining us, we're brought or we're recording from the Cohen Multimedia Studio here on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution. I'm Jordan Steves. Sitting across the table from me is David Griffith, our vice president, and Emily and Richard Smucker, chair for education at Chautauqua Institution. And we're talking about his his role here on the grounds, and we'll get to programming here shortly. Dave, I wanted to revisit something you you described yourself, and you are uh, an essayist. Um, how did you how did you land on that? form that genre as the the one that you would you know you would carry out into the world that's a great question i i started out writing fiction and um you know like a lot of people um thought that i would you know write the great american novel you know by the age of 25 and you know and and just leave lead this fabulous literary uh lifestyle um and I'm very happy that that um, that didn't happen, right? It didn't happen in that in that kind of timeline or in that way, because I think I've found my way toward um, the thing that is that most suits my personality, uh, which is nonfiction and uh, the essay in particular. Uh, one thing I skipped over earlier uh, when I was telling you about you know my upbringing is that I really, really, really thought I was going to be a journalist. Like that's what I wanted to do, and very close to going to University of Missouri and going to their journalism school. And at the last minute, uh, my my dad is an, an alum of Notre Dame, and he was like, you know, if that if that doesn't work out, you know, maybe you want to be in a place where you could shift over to another major in in an easy way. Plus, he was putting pressure on me to 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 be a you know to to also follow his footsteps. I think not too much pressure, but you know, so I've always been attracted to um, and 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 believe in the importance of journalism. Um, you know, I, I, in in that way, uh, that it makes America distinctive, and I think it's what drives America. Um, the, the you know this crazy experiment that is American democracy. Uh, we have this fourth estate, right? This check uh, against power, which which is uh, which is journalism and telling the truth and getting it right and having the public's best interest in mind and asking the kinds of questions that you know the the regular citizen um, can't get answers to on their own. 
Um, and, you know, the, the essay as a form um, is a, a kind of, um, a lot of people talk about it in terms of navel gazing, right? The personal essay, just saying I, 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 I all the time. But I, I think it's a, it's a method of sort of self-interrogation, right? Um, the personal essay. And that's, that's something that really appeals to me, right? That you could have, that you could write in such a way that you're both doing some outward looking as well as some inward looking. Um, James Baldwin does this, you know, very, very well. Um, you know, he'll write about, you know, the, the riots in Detroit up against, you know, his own personal, uh, you know, experiences uh, with, with racism. Joan Didion does this very well, you know, in terms of she's writing about, you know, all these children basically that have made their way to hate Ashbury in the late 60s and run away from home. And she herself is a mother and talking to these kids. And, and I, so I really like the, the way in which the, the writer can be a part of the story while still doing some really important, I think, chronicling of what's going on, you know, out in, in the broader world. Um, so yeah, that, that's what's in it for me uh, as, a, as an essayist. I still read a lot of fiction. I still plan to, to you know, as the years go by, continue to, to write fiction when it, you know, presents itself to me. But most projects these days present themselves to me as, as essay. So. As a teacher, and you've taught both uh, younger children and, and high school students and master's program, college, you know, near, new, uh, soon-to-be graduates out into the world, what, how, do you, how did you help your students find their voice, find the best avenue for their creativity? That's a good question. Um, you know, the, I think the first thing uh, is really ask what they like. You know, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What are your obsessions? What are the things that you worry about? Uh, what are the things that make you really happy? Um, I think when you're, when you're writing about those things... Um, that's when you're going to start to find that the language and the voice that is the truest expression, uh, uh, you know, of yourself. I think that's as a side note. I think that's what I didn't like about uh, about the prospect of being a journalist because I knew that I was going to pay my dues and and do a lot of shoe leather, you know, kind of reporting. And and that's at the time I was immature and I didn't want anybody telling me what to write about, you know. And um, so knowing that about myself, that impatience, uh, I was able to really, I think work hopefully effectively with my students when they were going through that, that same impatience when I was asking them to to write about things like let's say a lot of exercises you know we do a lot of exercises in creative writing um, you know to, to like a musician would to exercise the writing muscles and to get you thinking in different ways um, and I and I was able to tap into my own impatience and my own uh, you know stubbornness when, when working with them um, but yeah it's really about encouraging them to 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 uh, to chase those things that they that they obsess over, um, and they're and that they're passionate about, um, and you know, th I think the other the other part of this too, in terms of helping them find their voice, is um, in really encouraging them to read their work out loud. Um, there's just no replacement for you know hearing it you know uh, out loud and in the air and how it carries. Um, I mean, you can tell, uh, I'm sure that you can tell with your work when you read it out loud, oh, that word's not working. That, that. And a lot of the conversations that I would end up having with students when we, when they read their work out loud is we could say, and, and really, I think you could set your watch by it, they would, they would stop themselves and say, oh, wow, that's not me at all. 
who says that? I wouldn't say that, <laughs> right? So uh, it, it's a it's. I had you know a wonderful time teaching, and I and I don't think I'm done teaching either. I'm I'm really eager to to continue as a teacher. You you must keep up with some of your students from over the years. What what kinds of things have they gone on to do? Oh man, I'm so happy. Uh, you know, hearing from my students is amazing. You know, I, I just yesterday uh, one of my first creative writing students, uh, her second book is coming out. Wow. She just got the galleys in the mail. So happy for her. her name is Rosalie Connect, K-N-E-C-H-T. Um, so check check out her work. Um, you know, another student of mine just came to me and said, would you write the, f- the, the foreword to my first book? I'd really like you to do that. And I, you know, I was really honored. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of my students uh, are publishing now, which um, w- was not the goal. You know, that wasn't my goal as a teacher. I, I, I would never stand up in front of a classroom and say, uh, and, and promise anyone um that they're going to be a published author. Um, but I would always say to them that it's possible. You know, it's, there's not, it's not some magical, you know, uh, there's not some magic formula uh, to doing this. You, you have to put your behind in the chair and you have to write. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm really pleased at the number of, of, of my students who, you know, uh, are still doing that. And, and, you know, the students who aren't um, pursuing writing as, as a, as a career uh, in any way, um, are still reading, and in some cases, still writing, um, you know, as an avocation uh, on the side. So, yeah, I've just been really lucky to to have wonderful, wonderful students over the years, and and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully a lifetime of hearing from from students from across the years. So, I want to uh, shift back to Chautauqua now, and I pulled up the release that the institution sent out when you were appointed, and it says. At Chautauqua, you, quote, manage and provide administrative leadership for youth programs, special studies, which is the lifelong learning courses here, the Smith Memorial Library, Chautauqua Archives, the Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle, the Writers' Center, and a comprehensive literary arts program that includes the Chautauqua Literary Prize. That's quite a portfolio. Yeah. It's all, <laughs> when you put a, when you read them all back to back to back like that, I'm like, oh my gosh, how, I'm missing something, aren't I? Yeah. So, so we've spent a lot of time it, so far in this conversation talking about the literary arts, and we'll, we'll come back to that. But I want to spend uh, some time here. You were hired with a specific directive to grow Chautauqua's youth programming in particular. It, so in your time on staff here, what have you observed about, about Chautauqua's existing offerings for children and teens? And what initiatives have you been able to set in motion? Or do you look forward to setting in motion? Sure. Well, number one, uh, Boys and Girls Club uh, is, you know, just the core of the youth experience here at Chautauqua and has been for many, many, many years going back to the to the beginning. And we should say this is Chautauqua's Boys and Girls Club, not affiliated with the national. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, um, that came through loud and clear when I first came to the grounds that, in fact, when I arrived on the grounds uh, last summer, I was given a tour of, 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 the, of the club area uh, of the grounds near the waterfront, and they were having a celebration of their, um, uh, I forget what anniversary it was. It was 125th. 125th anniversary, which is just amazing. And um, there were people from, you know, you know, the 60s there and the 70s and, and the 80s. And, and you know, of course, kids that were in camp or in club at the moment, you know, um, swimming and, and sailing and, 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 and playing field games. So I, I just saw immediately and was impressed immediately with how um, 
how central Boys and Girls Club has been to, and, and I think will continue to be to the youth experience here. It binds people together across the years, that experience that they have. Greg Prechtel, the director of Boys and Girls Club, uh, has just done an amazing job, I think, uh, keeping this, this program vibrant for so many generations of, of kids. Um, that said... What I also was hearing from parents and grandparents and from some kids was that they they wanted the club experience, but they also would like to have the opportunity to take special studies classes. Now, special studies is our lifelong education, um, you know, kind of program, a kind of small college within the institution. Um, And it was difficult to do both. It was difficult to do a full day of club from nine to four and also take a special studies course. And so that is one of the, the new initiatives that we're rolling out this this coming season is a program called Club Plus, where you attend club in the morning, like you always do, and then in the afternoon, you attend a class that's been created specifically for club students. Um, we really wanted these classes to be hands-on, uh, to be project-based. Uh, we also wanted as much as possible for these courses to uh, involve aspects of STEM education as well as arts education. So you might hear the, the term STEAM being used, mm-hmm. that acronym for, you know, uh, you know, for the, the STEM and the arts coming together. Uh, and I'm really, really excited about it. Uh, my, my education staff is really excited about it. Uh, because we were able to bring partners from the local community and from the region in to help us teach these classes. So we have classes being offered by the Audubon folks in Jamestown. We have classes being offered by the Roger Tory Peterson Institute, uh, which is an environmentalist uh, you know, um, institution. Uh, we have classes that are being offered by Infinity Arts uh, in, in Jamestown. Um, just to name, uh, just to name a few. Uh, we also have a class that uh, is going to focus on the First Amendment, taught by a former dean of the journalism school at Saint Bonaventure University, uh, Lee Coppola. Um, so we're really um, doing something that that I had hoped would happen maybe in three years, but we're able to do it in here in this first year. Um, you know, which is to to be a place where people want to come together and teach and learn. Right uh, from the from the community and from the region, so very excited about that. Uh, the other thing I'm really excited about is uh, our Young Readers program. Uh, our list is going to be announced very soon. Uh, by the time this airs, it'll it'll be out. But our Young Readers program to go to chq.org for that. There we go. Good plug. Um, you know, engages our younger uh, Chautauquans. Um, so we'll be reading this season uh, the Little House on one of the Little House on the Prairie books. Uh, for our week two uh, American identity theme. Uh, And the reason why we chose that, in addition to this being a very important piece of American literature in terms of recording what frontier days were like, um, is that the author of that book, Laura Ingalls Wilder, um, will be a topic of discussion by our CLSC author for that week, uh, uh, Carolyn Frazier, who, it just so happens, won the Pulitzer Prize in biography for her book, which is called Prairie Fires. So, um, you know, one of the exciting things for me about um, being uh, instrumental in the youth programs is the ways that we can continue to connect the youth experience to the experience that, that the adults are having, which I think can often oftentimes be a tough thing, right? I think at the beginning of, of Chautauqua, children were seen and not heard. And uh, that's not where we are now, right? That's not where we are now. We understand that children have a lot to contribute um, to our 
um, you know, to, to the dialogue. Um, you know, it's, it's sad circumstances that have brought us here, but we're looking at you know, a youth movement in the, in the United States, the Parkland students, for example, in the aftermath of that awful uh, shooting. Uh, we see the, the importance and the power of youth voices uh, to weigh in on, uh, on important issues. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think Chautauqua uh, young people, young Chautauquans, um, are, you know, we need to bring them into the conversation, you know, when appropriate. So, and we're going to do that. We're going to do that with Club Plus. We're going to do that with young readers. Um, and we're also going to do that uh, with our special studies offerings, um, many of which uh, are intergenerational. Um, students as young as 13 or 14 years old might be in a class uh, with someone who's in their 50s or their 60s. So it's a unique, um, you know, it's a really unique aspect of what Chautauqua offers. There's there's not many places in the country that that offer this intergenerational exchange. Um, and so it, it's exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing what else we can offer. Where do you see opportunities for local community um, in terms of Chautauqua's involvement with Chautauqua or Chautauqua in, in being involved in their lives? Uh, I know there's a big arts and arts education initiative that's coming out of our uh, Chautauqua's performing and visual arts program. But where do you see opportunities for the areas you're responsible for? Well, young readers is a big part of uh, of that. Um, young readers engages um, not just children that are uh, on the grounds with their families uh, for vacation, um, but it also engages uh, school children in Chautauqua County through our Battle of the Books uh, uh, competition. And in fact, Battle of the Books, uh, entering its second year, um, is one of the prime ways that we hope to continue to attract more young people and their families uh, to the grounds. Um, if you're not familiar with the concept, essentially there's a there's a, a list of books that are distributed to a, a team, and the team reads them. And uh, there's judges that make up questions based on those books. And then we get together and we have these very friendly, I should say, um, matches in which you, the kids answer questions about the plot and the characters and the, the themes of, of these books. Friendly but rowdy, too. This is what I understand. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm, I'm very excited uh, about this. Um, and so, you know, really, I think the literary arts uh, is one of the big ways that we're going to attract the community, to, you know, uh, especially young people, to the grounds. Um, another way that I, that I want to bring more people to the grounds is through our special studies uh, program. Special studies courses can be taken by anyone. You don't have to be uh, visiting the grounds for vacation. Uh, you you could live right off the grounds and come and take a course. And the the great kind of um, secret that's not really a secret, but that people a lot of people don't know is that uh, your gate pass is fee is waived during the period of time that that course is taking place. So you come to the grounds, you take your course, and you, and, you, and you leave. And so you get to access uh, Chautauqua, um, you, you know, in, in the rich educational opportunities we have um, at, at a much lower cost than, than you would if you were buying a gate pass for an, an entire week. Um, and we have such a, a wide array of, of courses. We have something like 513 courses being offered over nine weeks. Uh, and it's just an, an amazing wealth of, of opportunities um, for people. And I think the last way, um, although I'm sure there are other ways that we'll discover, but one of the last ways that we're bringing uh, the community to the grounds are through some of our uh, uh, initiatives, partnerships with colleges and universities. So, for example, Jamestown Community College, um, are, they're going to be offering four courses um, for credit 
that uh, are based around a weekly theme this season. And so that'll bring people to the ground who, um, you know, know that Chautauqua's here, might have heard about it, know that we, you know, bring in uh, experts and speakers to talk about, you know, important issues um, facing America and the world, but really had no uh, reason or, or way of accessing it. And now through uh, uh, these courses that are being offered by JCC, um, they'll, they'll, they'll get a chance to do that. So we're excited about uh, th- those possibilities. If you're just tuning in, we're recording from the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution. I'm Jordan Steves, joined this time by Dave Griffith, Vice President, and Emily and Richard Smucker, Chair for Education. We've talked about his background, and now we're getting into the details of the upcoming season, the 2018 season here at Chautauqua Institution. Dave, I want to jump back to the literary arts now. You're responsible for that area as well. You've um, hired a director of literary arts uh, who came with you, more or less, from Interlochen, Adam Atkinson, and you two have tackled the task of programming uh, one of Chautauqua's most historic platforms, the CLSC platform, in which they invite authors, you invite authors here to speak and present their work. What what has that been like to inherit that legacy, and what has been your approach, your and Adam's approach to this work? Yeah, um, humbling. You know, I, I think when you when you take on something that has the history and the legacy and the tradition of the CLSC, which is often referred to as the oldest book club in America. Um, Apparently erroneously. Which, but. which, yeah, I, I think is, you ask our archivist, John Schmitz, uh, and he'll tell you that's, that's not exactly true. Um, but, you know, I, I love history. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a history geek. And um, the history of the CLSC is, is just, it's an amazing story. Um, very quickly, you know, the CLSC started as a way of creating um, or making available education, a kind of college-level education, to people for whom it would not be accessible oftentimes very middle-class uh, housewives. Um, so we're here talking late, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, and the way that that was offered uh, t- to folks was through a, uh, a set of books, a book list. And you would read those books and then you would take uh, tests and you, and you would send them in. So this was a correspondence course, essentially. And you would, at the end of the four years, get a, dip- a, a diploma. Things have changed a lot. The brainchild of Bishop John Heil Vincent, one of Chautauqua's co-founders also. Um, absolutely. And it's a, you know, it's a brilliant, brilliant idea. Uh, we've gotten away from the correspondence course dimension to it, although I'd be really interested in the possibility of bringing that back in some way. Um, and now it's a, a list of nine to sometimes 11 books, so at least one book per week in which we bring in the author to present uh, from the book and do a signing and answer questions. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, that was one of the biggest uh, intimidating factors for me uh, taking on this job. Uh, it was, you know, oh, I don't want to mess this up. I want to choose books that that everyone is going to enjoy. And of course, that's an impossible task. You can't please everyone. And thankfully, um, Adam Atkinson accepted the position as director of literary arts because uh, Adam is has just been um, instrumental in this. Uh, you know, Adam was really the you know the the main driver behind I think the excitement and the enthusiasm to go out there and and just and really and really 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 look around at the at, at all the possibilities before making any choices. Um, 
we often get suggestions from Chautauquans. Um, we have people sending us books in the mail out of the blue saying, hey, consider this for the CLSC. Um, and so there's a lot of input. You know, the process starts with a lot, a lot of possibilities and when we have to narrow it down. So we have it narrowed down finally, um, uh, you know, to, uh, to 11 books. And, um, you know, we're, we're just really, really, or excuse me, 12 books um, because we have a, a couple authors um, in, uh, in different weeks. We'll, we'll double up in a couple weeks. Sure. And, um, you know, it, it, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how people react because it's a, it's a wide array of books. We have um, uh, books that are um, very much long-form narrative journalism, um, like Jessica Bruder's Nomadland, uh, Surviving America in the 21st Century. Um, we have, That's on August 2nd. Oh, yeah, um, we have um, Azreen Vandervliet Illumi, um, her novel Call Me Zebra, which is um, just a, a, an amazing uh, work of... Um, it's an amazing work of fiction that, that spans continents. That's really about the immigrant um, experience, about someone who exists in multiple cultures. And and, uh, and she'll be here July 26th. Yeah. Um, and then in, in week one, I should, I, should, I should definitely put in a plug for week one, the theme for that week being the life of the written word. We have, uh, you know, really an embarrassment of riches that week. We have the novelist John Irving, you know, very, very famous for Cider House Rules and the World According to Garp. We have the 2018 Pulitzer Prize winner in poetry, Taya Himbajess. Both of John Irving and Taya Himbajess will be on the 1045 lecture platform, which doesn't happen very often. And then we'll also have uh, the winner of the first Chautauqua Prize, which we haven't talked about yet. But the first Chautauqua Book Prize, Andrew Kravak, um, and he'll be uh, here as the week one CLSC selection for The Signal Flame. Um, you know, so... It, in, in some ways, these these decisions were easy. Um, choosing Andrew Kravak uh, as as the week one choice uh, uh, seemed like a, a no brainer in, in some ways to commemorate you know the his winning of the Chautauqua Prize. Um, and you know in other ways they were really fraught. You know we were looking at you know we'd sit in my office or Adam's office and look at the this you know group of books on the table and say, gosh, can't we just select all of them? You know. Um, but it's it's going to be a, a really interesting summer, you know, in you know when it comes to CLSC because uh, everyone's going to have an opinion, I think, about these books, and I, and I look forward to hearing from people about their experiences reading them. You said you can't please everyone with every book, but perhaps you can please most people with at least one of the twelve. So, <laughs> I hope so. I, I hope so. You know, I we just selected for week nine. Um, uh, Doug Stanton's uh, work of, of nonfiction called Horse Soldiers. That'll and, be August 23rd. Yeah, and Doug, uh, each of Doug's books have been a, a New York Times bestseller. Uh, he writes uh, in his first book about um, the, US in the sinking of the USS Indianapolis during World War II. His second book, Horse Soldiers, is about uh, a, team, a special forces uh, unit that goes into Afghanistan on horseback right after 9-11. Uh, again, this you know, true story, which was just turned into a Jerry Bruckheimer film called 12 Strong. And his third book, which just came out in paperback, is called The Odyssey of Echo Company, which is about the Tet Offensive. Um, and we are you know, um, commemorating uh, the uh, Tet Offensive this year because it was 1968. So what would that be? You know, 50 years, 50 years ago. Um, so Doug, I think, will bring to the table uh, both, uh, you know, 
the, the literary chops that we always want from a, a, a CLSC selection, as well as, I think, uh, this broad appeal um, that uh, I, I think writing about war and conflict uh, has in America, you know, especially at, at, at this moment. Um, each of his books, uh, I think, brings it, brings attention to the the veteran experience, which I think is, is something that is, is is incredibly important to to highlight. And it's going to happen during a week, um, uh, the last week documentary film as facilitator, storytelling, influence, and civil discourse. And so it'll be great to talk to Doug about the ways in which his work um, is part of civil discourse, um, the way that, you know, writing a book about, um, you know, the, the lives of, of soldiers um, gives the, the lay person, uh, you know, a new appreciation for, um, you know, the, the trials and tribulations uh, of war and post-war. Um, so we're really excited about this list. You know, there's fiction, there's poetry, there's nonfiction. Um, I, think th- I think there's going to be something for everybody. I should note that all the books you mentioned you can find, and more, you can find, uh, listeners can find at chq.org slash CLSC. And the wider offerings of Chautauqua Institution, many of which are literary in nature, can be found at chq.org slash 2018-2018. We're um, coming up on the last part of our, our conversation here, Dave. Um, I want to get into, uh, I want to mention and, and have you talk a little bit about the approach to the Writers' Center, the Chautauqua Writers' Center and the Writers' Festival that we, uh, the institution puts on preseason every year, the new relationship between those two programs, and then what uh, Adam and you have created for the, uh, for the aspiring writers of Chautauqua this summer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I should first say that... Um, if I didn't already, that uh, Adam is um, just an amazing asset to the institution um, insofar as Adam, um, though relatively young, has just a ton of experience with programming, putting on conferences, uh, curating a reading series. I mean, these are things that, um, that, that they do very, very well. And um, I, I think probably as good or maybe not better than anybody in the country. And um, so we really hit the ground running in in the fall uh, because we have had a mandate from our president, Michael Hill, that we wanted to raise the profile of the literary arts at Chautauqua. Um, The Writers' Center, uh, which is based in Alumni Hall, a beautiful, beautiful uh, building near the Hall of Philosophy, um, has for years been a, a who's who as far as our, our writers and residents uh, go. Um, so we're bringing in these, these published authors who are wonderful teachers to work with Chautauquans in creative writing workshop settings. Um, and it, it's just this amazing, um, uh, just this amazing history there of, of, of uh, you know, like I said, a who's who uh, in, in the world of, of, of literature coming to teach and, and, having unprecedented access to these writers. And so when we approached it, we knew, much like when, when I approached Club, we knew that there, that there was uh, a core here that we didn't want to touch. And, and, and that's what we've done. We've preserved the format, which is that anyone could come and take a, a workshop with these writers for you know, relatively you know, inexpensive uh, fee uh, for an entire week. Um, some of the things that we decided to uh, to take another look at uh, was who are we inviting 
So, um, you know, it's very important, you know, to Chautauquans that we bring uh, back writers and teachers who have um, who have a long history with Chautauqua. It's important that they understand the history here in the tradition and, and the Writer Center. So uh, we're doing that. We're continuing to, to, to do that, but we're bringing in a mix of younger authors as well. Um, and we're, we're very, very excited uh, about that. We're bringing in Julie Bunton. Julie, who's a novelist, her first novel, uh, Marlena, uh, just came out um, in the spring, uh, or excuse me, uh, back in the fall. Uh, and we're bringing her along with her husband, Gabe Habash, um, who's also uh, a novelist. His, his novel, Stephen Florida, which is about a, 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 a wrestler, um, a young wrestler, um, freestyle wrestling, not professional wrestling, uh, which, you know, did amazingly well. Uh, both books reviewed in the New York Times. You know, they're a dynamic, young uh, writing couple who have, you know, wonderful chops as teachers. And, um, you know, they're going to bring a different perspective. You know, they're newly into the literary you know, world. And, um, you know, I think they're going to be able to bring to Chautauquans, um, you know, a sense of, you know, what are the trends, you know, the, the new trends in the literary landscape right now. And we're going to balance that against uh, some folks who have who have taught at Chautauqua, you know, uh, several times before. Um, so that's that's something we were trying to really make sure that we uh, got a balance uh, in in the uh, Writers Center, the Writers Festival. Um, it happens right before the season. Uh, that'll take place, uh, I believe, June 20, 20th through 23rd. And um, the, we've completely reimagined the uh, format for that for that festival in that it's going to be themed. The theme this year is going to be writing in times of crisis. Uh, we have a really exciting slate of, of poets, uh, fiction writers, and nonfiction writers coming in to teach workshops, as well as lead um, breakout sessions and panels uh, about these issues, you know, what does it mean to be a writer in a time of crisis? What does it mean to be a reader uh, in, in these times as well? In what ways is literature serving, uh, you know, s- serving the public, um, you know, in, in, in times of uncertainty and, and, and in times when uh, things feel so fraught? Um, so, yeah, there's been, a lot of work has gone into the literary arts, but um, with a, always one eye on maintaining that core, you know, that that. That you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And there's there was so much um, wonderful things that we did not want to you know even think about touching. So, I, so it, it'll to people who uh, have taken courses before in the Writer Center who, or have been to the festival, it's still gonna I, th- I think feel very familiar and they're gonna feel at home. But they're also gonna see I think some new wrinkles to it that are gonna be exciting. And the director of the Writers Festival, Lillian Yvonne Bertram, uh, also new this year, uh, who is co-directing it more or less with Chautauqua's own Adam Atkinson. Mm-hmm. She will also be a writer in residence at the Writers Center. Absolutely, so. and Lillian is a Buffalo native, uh, which you know made it even uh, made her an even more uh, enticing choice for us. We're so lucky that she that she agreed uh, to to be the director. Um, you know, she teaches at, uh, at UMass Boston and is a, a, a wonderful poet. Um, and uh, you know, we, we just c- couldn't be happier. She's going to bring a lot of uh, of new blood, I think, to to the uh, to the festival. And um, it's going to. You know, we really wanted to, for this to become a more nationally uh, um, known uh, festival. Um, before we were drawing a little bit more regionally. And um, we want to ex- build on that w- wonderful foundation. 13 years, I, I think, is, is mm-hmm. it's been in existence. We really wanted to build on the wonderful foundation that the, that the previous uh, directors established. And, um, yeah, we think good things are ahead. 
in our remaining time, Dave, I want to close with the two prizes that you oversee, you and Adam oversee. When you started at this job, you only had one prize to oversee, and you've added one. Can you tell us more about the Janus Prize? Sure. So the Janus Prize um, is to uh, really uh, celebrate work of works of innovative prose, so fiction and, and nonfiction. Short works, too. Short yes. works, yes. Um, and, you know, the thinking there was, and this was all, this was donor-driven. We had a donor come to us and was very eager to be involved in literary arts in, in some way. And, um, you know, we realized that there was a, really a need out there to um, to elevate, you know, and, and shine a spotlight on uh, you know, works of, of innovative prose. And so that's how we came to the Janus Prize, Janus being the, the god with, the, with the, uh, the, the two faces, right? One looking ahead to the future and one looking to the past as a way that we're, we're, we're talk, talking about and thinking about it. Uh, the other prize, the Chautauqua Prize, um, like the CLSC, though not as, not as old, not nearly as old, is something I inherited and, and felt some amount of... of uh, trepidation and anxiety about inheriting because uh, my predecessor Sheriff Babcock had done, you know, who who created the prize, um, had done such a marvelous job with it, and uh, you know, uh, by the time this airs, we'll have announced uh, a, a winner. You can go to uh, chq.org/prize if you want to. But our that finalist out. list, uh, we have seven finalists. Our finalist list is just uh, like our CLSC selections. There's something for everybody. Um, there's a work of, of um, sci-fi in there. Uh, there's a, a work of, of nonfiction uh, about the, the uh, blacklisting era in Hollywood. Uh, you know that, that was uh, right around the McCarthy, uh, you know, House for Un American Activities um, trials. Um, there's also uh, novels and uh, and and, uh, and memoir as well. So I, again, like the CLSC list, although we didn't necessarily set out to do this. Um, with the selection of the books, we really ended up with this uh, with a list where I think there's going to be something for everybody. And so the the secret jury convenes sometime in the coming days, and then we'll select the prize, and we'll get that out as I mentioned at chq.org/prize. Uh, and the, the great thing about that too is all of the long list books the authors need to have committed or shortlist books I should say the authors need to have committed to make an appearance at Chautauqua come for hopefully a, a week-long residency this summer and receive the prize and then give a public presentation obviously without a winner we don't know quite who that will be or or which or exactly week. when but. yeah yeah no it's 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 such a, a it was such a brilliant idea to create this prize uh, and again I can't claim credit for that was Shara Babcock who began it um, it's it's really exciting. I mean, it, it like week one of this season, the life of the written word, you know, being celebrated. The the week where we uh, award the Chautauqua Prize will also be an opportunity for literary arts to shine, um, you know, and 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 turn the, the the community's attention toward the importance of literature, um, you know, to this institution. So, it's an honor, you know, to to be you know to steward. I think all of these various programs. From literary arts to young, you know, to, to youth programs, um, it's it's a lot. You know, there's a lot, and I have an amazing team of people that that helps me, um, you know, to to make sure that everything runs smoothly, and that we also, and I think it needs to be said, that we also continue to look to the future and say, how can these programs uh, improve, and what haven't we dreamed up yet? You know, um, 
you know, what is, what is the next generation of Chautauquans? Uh, what, what are they interested in? How can we serve them? So um, it's a lot of fun, and I look forward to seeing it all set in motion uh, this season. So just a, a couple seconds left, but I want to ask you just personally how you're what you're feeling as you enter this upcoming season, your first full season that you'll be experiencing as a, as a, in leadership here, but you're also experiencing it as, and at times, not very often, but at times as an audience member, as the father of two children who will be having their first Chautauqua experience. What what is it that, uh, how does that feel to you? Um, my first thought is that I need to sleep while I can um, and really bank some, you know, some good sleep. Um, my second thought is just the excitement that I have, you know, going into it. I mean, every day is going to be new. Every day is going to be different uh, for me. Um, every day is going to be new and different for my kids. Um, and I'm, I'm just so, you know, I feel so lucky to to uh, be able to offer that experience to them. And I feel very lucky for to, to you know, experience it myself. You know, uh, I'm going to learn a lot. You know, I'm going to learn uh you know, I, I guarantee you that there's going to be some things that, that we've planned that don't necessarily go off exactly as we planned them. And we're going to learn from that. Uh, and we're going to, I'm sure, hear about that from our from our audience, uh, you know, because Chautauquans are, you know, so passionate and so knowledgeable and they care so much about this institution that um, there's there's always, I think, a good feedback loop that we've got going. So, um, yeah, I'm excited. I need some sleep, uh, you know, so I can, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, attack this with the with the kind of passion that I'm, you know, that, that I'd like to. Um, and I'm, you know, just looking forward to uh, um, seeing everybody uh, in the amphitheater on uh, on the 23rd. David Griffith, Vice President and Emily and Richard Smucker, Chair for Education at Chautauqua Institution. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time with us today. Thank you, Jordan. It's been fun. Thanks to Dave Griffith for joining us on CHQ&A today. Our producer for this program was Dave Munch, with additional support from Ray Downey. A version of this program will also air as Chautauqua Chronicles on WRFA 107.9 FM, listener-supported radio in Jamestown, New York. We're grateful to General Manager Dennis Drew for our partnership. CHQ&A is a production of Chautauqua Institution, recorded in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A.